This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Rachel Blevins, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you for having me. How is the information war treating you? You know, it has been a very surreal couple of months, I will say. You know, it's I'm I'm used to getting a little bit of criticism online, especially working for RT. Mm. That's been the norm. But I think back in February when things really escalated in Ukraine, it was just an onslaught on social media. And it was, I mean, truly this targeted campaign. I've never seen anything like it of accounts just coming out of the woodworks. Of course, they're newly created. They've got, you know, the Ukrainian flag somewhere in their profile picture or their name or something like that. And I mean, it was just by the thousands. And then within a matter of days, I mean, RT America was being pulled off of DirecTV and Roku. And then they announced that they were shutting down. And it really was just kind of one of those things where you look back and you're like, wait a second, my entire life changed in a matter of days. And now, even though we're coming up on two months of that anniversary, it still is incredibly surreal to think about just how much everything has changed into just how that really that campaign, not only against Russia, but also against RT and RT America, how fast that went and how many people jumped on board with it. I mean, you, you're jumping the gun a little bit, but let's, let's quickly talk about that and we'll go backwards after that. But what actually happened? Yeah, so, you know, I and honestly, I don't quite know all of the things behind the scenes that went on. I just know that from my standpoint, you know, I'd been working for RT America for nearly four years and it was, you know, the job where I went every single day. And so we kind of had a day of finding out that RT America had been dropped by DirecTV and Roku. And then they were losing staff left and right because a lot of people were kind of seeing the writing on the wall and seeing that tensions were not going to de-escalate with Russia anytime soon. And so they made the decision, I believe, on March 2nd to stop productions for the day. And then they came in on March 3rd and said that they were ceasing productions altogether. So that's about as much as I know of it. I know that there was a lot going on behind the scenes and that it was a decision that was made by the management at RT America. But in terms of what actually really led up to that, I don't know. Tell me a little bit about you, your background. Sure. So I'm originally from Texas, from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I went to school at Texas Tech, majored in journalism, and kind of found myself in my freshman year, which I'm sure a lot of freshmen do, where you kind of find yourself in that place of Mm. trying to figure out what in the world you want to do with your life. And I was looking at very honest journalism professors who said, look, you're going to get this degree and there are going to be no guarantees, right? You may go work at a local TV news station making 22 grand a year, or you can go work for a local newspaper and the stories you're going to be covering are not going to be exciting. They're not going to be interesting. They're going to be, you know, local city council meetings and car wrecks and all that. And so I was kind of in this place where I realized, okay, I don't want to do that. So do I want to stay in journalism and how am I going to make this work for me? And so I started looking at a lot of the independent journalists that were out there. And RT was also a big influence in that as well, because they were this network that was outside of the mainstream. And I was seeing people being able to go on their shows and to speak freely and also to cover a lot of stories. I mean, at the time, this was 2014. So you had, you know, Israel was bombing Gaza. You had protests and riots in Ferguson, Missouri. And there were so many different stories that I was watching the way that the mainstream media covered it. And then I was watching what was actually being said on social media and these on the ground reports from people who were speaking out and saying, no, this is what's actually happening here. And so I think it really started my interest to go more the independent route than to just Mm go, you know, sort of your normal mainstream route. Has it been a blessing? 
You know, I, I think it has, and I kind of, certainly it has not been easy, I will say mm -hmm. that much, but, you know, after my freshman year, I kind of made the decision of saying, like, no, that's good, I'll just go major in public relations, I'll, you know, get a generic degree, I'll go work, make a decent living, and I won't get involved in this, and then all of the freelance jobs that I would get, anyone that was interested in me, it was always journalism related, and so it was kind of one of those things where, I just had to realize that this was what I was passionate about and that this was something that I needed to pursue, as scary as it is, because it is at times, certainly, working independently, it is not easy and there's mm. nothing that's guaranteed with it. But, I mean, it has been something that I am very grateful for because there's a lot of people out there who don't get to do what they're passionate about as they're living. You know, they, they have things that they're passionate about that they wish that they could pursue and some of them never get the chance to. So to be able to do that and to do that on a daily basis is something that I will always be very grateful for. Why are you passionate about journalism? I mean, it's pretty much in the toilet right now. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's an embarrassment to say that you're a journalist. You know, I think that's why I am passionate about it, though, because I mean, so many of these people, they become these mainstream media talking heads and their dream, whether it's to get to CNN or Fox News or whatever it may be, they're basically signing up to be a puppet, to be a robot, to sign up to, you know, yeah, you're on TV, but you're, you're sitting there asking the scripted questions. You're making sure that all of your special interest advertisers are happy with what you're saying and what you're putting out there. So to be able to do the exact opposite of that and to be able to come from a standpoint where I am consistently, and I don't necessarily mean to be, but I have consistently found myself on the side of being on the fringe of whatever the main narrative is, right? Whether it has been COVID, whether it has been Russia, all of these, it, it just feels like every main topic of the moment, I seem to be on the side of the people that are being targeted or being censored on, you know, major social media platforms. And so mm. I think because of that, it's like, well, that there certainly is a market for it. There certainly are people out there who want to hear what myself and others like yourself are saying and the information that we're putting out there. And there is a massive campaign to censor it right now. So I think that that kind of goes to show you the power of what we're doing when you have all of these major big tech companies that are going above and beyond to try to stop it. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that people like yourself who are on the vanguard um, are, are so, uh, what's the word, maligned, um, attacked, abused, censored? You know, I, I think it kind of goes two ways. I think one way you could look at it is that, you know, from the standpoint of big tech, the mainstream media, whatever it may be, they want someone to pick on. And so whenever it comes to journalists, especially whether it's independent, whether it's RT, whether it's anyone they can kind of look at as conspiracy related, they love to pick on us because it takes the attention away from them. It takes the attention away from the stories that they are refusing to cover or the guests that they're refusing to talk to. But then on the other side of that, I think there's kind of this push to say, well, we don't want those people to get too powerful or too popular. So they try to go in in advance and they say, oh, well, that's Russian propaganda. And they slap certain labels on it or, oh, that person's an anti-vaxxer or whatever it may be. As soon as they get that label out there, they seem to kind of try to do it early so that the majority of people, whenever they look up your name and they say, oh, well, who's this person I've never heard of? Then they're automatically like, oh, yeah, well, she's just a Russian propagandist therefore I shouldn't listen to anything she says which is why right now you have Twitter with their new labeling system where they have my account labeled as Russian state media and granted you can't even search for my name and find my account but if you do find my account you see that label there and so it puts it in a position to where someone who has no idea who I am looks at it and they say oh, okay well she's automatically discredited because of that label and they are almost incentivized not to take the time to actually look at what it is that I'm saying and the content that I'm putting out there. But, I mean, you are Russian state media. I mean, you get paid by Putin. Everybody knows that. Well, sure. And I think that one of the things that I've definitely highlighted, and, of course, they, they won't agree with me on this, but one of the things that I've talked a lot about is the fact that how crazy is it 
that you have to work for RT to be able to speak freely in the United States because I can attest to the fact that I have covered stories and I have been able to have that freedom to not only cover stories, but also to say things on air that never would have been allowed at CNN or Fox News or any of those other outlets. I mean, I was able to go to RT and I was able to talk about Yemen and Afghanistan and Iraq and all of these stories that the mainstream media just completely ignores. And so to have that opportunity is something that not only am I grateful for, but yeah, you know, I'll sit there and say, okay, I've got that label all day long. Yes, I work for Russian state media, and I would rather do that than work for any of these corporate outlets here in the United States. And I think to the average person, that really should say a lot. There's something paradoxical, though. I mean, you're American. You live in the country that is essentially the benchmark of the free world. And yet you are so heavily censored that you have to go to Russia today to to be a journalist. Yeah, yeah, that really is the world that we live in. And, you know, it's been interesting to see kind of the backlash that you get just for working for RT. I know a lot of the people that I went to college with or even, you know, past professors, it's not they don't really say anything, but they just kind of back Mm. away and give a little bit of space there because just the association with RT is something that they don't find as credible whatsoever. And so it's been, I think, notable, especially when I'm sitting here being able to say, you know, I was able to co-host an international business, economics and finance talk show, right? This is a show that is not political. This is a show where we sat there every day and we talked about markets. We talked about what was happening with different economies around the world. And we had experts from across the board. We had experts on there who were incredibly critical of Russia. You know, we had experts on there who were critical of every government, especially the U.S. government and what the Federal Reserve has done. And they were saying things at the time that you weren't seeing on CNBC or Fox Business. And so I think to be able to have that outlet and to have those people and that show was so powerful. And I don't know if people quite realize just what has been lost by taking that down. And I know I have gotten a lot of messages, I will say, from people who reach out and they say, you know, we really miss RT America and Boom Bust because that was a platform that we were not seeing anywhere else. And you were giving space to those viewpoints that aren't being talked about in the mainstream. What has it been like in terms of all the hate that you've received? You know, up until a couple of months ago, I would say it hadn't been bad at all, right? You get kind of the average person who's critical of you for working for RT. In the last couple months, it has the dial has just been turned up to 11, it feels like. And Mm. so I think for me, it's kind of put me in a frustrating place of feeling like and being reminded, too, that it's like, look, you're never going to say anything that is going to make that mob happy. Right. You could come out and say everything I've said is wrong. I've been completely controlled and make all of these claims just to make them happy. And they're still not going to be happy. And so it's kind of put me in a place where it's made me realize like, okay, I need to stand up for what I'm saying. Not only do I need to back up what I'm saying, but I also need to make sure that this is something that, you know, I'm standing on the basis of what I believe in. And I'm, you know, trusting that the people who are there and that follow me are going to continue to do so. And just not giving in to all of the hate on the internet. But it, it's been pretty bad. It's quieted down, I will say, a little bit now. But it's still, it, it has been more than I think I was ready for just being the average person on the internet. Because I'm not, I don't have that big of a following. So I think it was kind of one of those where it, whenever it came out of the woodwork, so to speak, it was a little bit more than I was prepared for. But I mean, I've been grateful to friends and family who have kind of, stood there with me through it and have provided encouragement and support along the way. Uh, give me an example of some of a message that you've received that's been lousy. Oh, goodness. You know, I, I've never, which I will say, I've never met any officials in the Russian government, certainly have never met President Putin. And yet I have been called Putin's whore on social media <laughs> more times than I can count. And I'm just like, that's what you'll automatically turn to. I mean, that's that's what I will never understand. But yes, that has been the uh, 
one prevailing a lot of random death threats and i think that a lot of times when you when you do get death threats you have to kind of look at it from the standpoint of like okay is this believable? Is this someone who, I mean, granted, because I live in DC at the time, RT America's office address is public. And, you know, people know that I take public transportation, that sort of thing. And so you kind of have to put yourself in the place of looking at these messages and thinking, okay, are these serious enough that someone would be deranged enough to try to come and track me down or to try to track down my address or whatever that may be? And when you're getting a lot of those messages at the same time, it is it is pretty scary. So I think it's also been a reminder to me to, you know, step up things on my end in terms of safety and to do what I can to protect myself in a city like DC where there, mm. I mean, gosh, even pepper spray is illegal here. So they, they really try to crack down on everything that they possibly can, which is bizarre considering how high the crime rate is here. But I guess that's another talk for another day. Tell me some, something interesting in, in the sense of what is, what has been a great story for you? I mean, you're a journalist, so you've obviously chosen a number of your stories based on, on what you find interesting. Um, sure. I mean, I think that one of the most interesting stories that I've had the chance to kind of cover and to continue to cover was just everything related to the Afghanistan war. And I know that that it kind of it made headlines in the fall whenever the Biden administration had, you know, their failed pullout and it was an entire mess and it was, you know, there was a lot of criticism of him then, but there was not a lot of criticism when President Trump was in office and he was severely increasing the drone strikes in Afghanistan. And as a result, not only were there more civilian casualties, but there was a year when the United States and its NATO allies killed more civilians in Afghanistan than the Taliban. And that I remember reporting on that story and looking around and seeing that no one else was reporting on it. I mean, I was getting the data from some of the different monitors that were in Afghanistan that were reporting it, but the majority of the mainstream networks were not even talking about it. And it was so hypocritical to me to look at this situation where, you know, the United States, this was the longest war in US history. They acted for years and years like they were going mm. to win this war. 20 and years, then, eh? It was like yeah. two decades. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, but in addition to blatantly lying to the American public, they continued to bomb this country and they continued to escalate the civilian casualties. And so I think that that's one of the things that a lot of the media don't really like to talk about it because they like to act as if drone strikes are sort of the humane way to carry out war because it's not direct boots on the ground. But at the same time, they ignore the fact that the way that the United States carries out drone strikes is just reckless. And there are so many civilians that die as a result that we truly don't even know how many, right? We have sort of the official counts, we have the different reports, but in terms of what actually happens on the ground, we don't know. And so I think that that has been one of the most powerful things has been to talk about those stories that may not grab the big headlines of CNN and Fox News and may not be what they wanted to talk about. But for me, being able to stand there and to bring that coverage and to talk about it and to turn it into an interesting story for my readers, I think was the was the uh, was an example of kind of what I got to do at RT America on the regular. I suppose an extended question then is, what does journalism mean to you? That's a good question. You know, I think that a lot of times you have those kind of catchy phrases like being a voice for the voiceless. But I think right now that makes it even more important than it's ever been before. And one of the things that I've been the most passionate about has been calling out that sort of left versus right pair paradigm that we always get stuck in, right? It's always Republicans versus Democrats, the left versus the right. And they try to convince you that that is the world that we live in when the majority of Americans look at these two political parties and they realize that they don't line up with either one of them. And so I think that that's been so important for me to look at just the U.S. political landscape and to realize, okay, I feel like I do not fit into this, right? There are so many different places here where I don't agree with the politics. I don't agree with what Congress is doing. I certainly don't agree with US foreign policy, but I'm not alone in that. I'm seeing people mm -hmm. across the country who 
agree strongly with what I'm saying and agree with the stories that I'm wanting to talk about. And so I think for me, that's one of the most important things about being a journalist is being able to bring those stories to light that are being ignored. And also at the same time, being able to say, hey, let's challenge this narrative because we live in a country where our media does not challenge the narrative. They just don't. They'll talk all day long about Trump's tweets or Biden spotted with an ice cream cone or some ridiculous story like that that they think is going to get. Elon buying Twitter. Right. Exactly. They will talk all day long about that. But at the same time, what they won't do is they won't talk about the war crimes that are being committed by the United States and other countries. And they'll, that's left and right, right? They want to act like, oh, well, the media is in favor of this candidate or that candidate. Well, they were only in favor of Donald Trump when he was illegally bombing Syria or he was increasing tensions with Russia or he was leading the United States toward World War III because those were the headlines that they wanted to run, not the headlines where, and certainly not the footage of, the drone strikes that are actually conducted by the United States. And I think that that's one of the most important things that I learned really early on was that the U.S. media does not show the aftermath of U.S. drone strikes. They just don't. And I think that if they did, I think that if they were honest about what the U.S. is actually doing in other countries, then the public would have a very different reaction. Instead, when they show the aftermath of drone strikes, who's it from? It's from Russia. It's from a country that they don't like. And then they'll show you the reality of just how awful and terrible a drone strike is. But when it's coming from the U.S. and when it's being funded by U.S. taxpayers, then suddenly that is not on their their agenda to actually be honest with the public about what their government is doing. I see you're also having a a hell of a battle there with your earpiece. I am. I am. You know, normally it doesn't give me too much trouble. It's always something, I swear. It's, it's, It's the Russians. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah i i love the uh i everything i don't like is russian propaganda or what i mean <laughs> gosh i thought it was bad in 2016 and little little did we know i mean it's just it's crazy to me to think that we are in a time where people are anti-someone because mm. of the country where they're from right to be critical of someone just because they're russian or just because they're chinese and it's like this is 2022 i mean have we not learned anything from history but i guess i guess we truly haven't when you have the us openly arming neo nazi militias in ukraine and acting like people can't question that and that's not a problem so well, look, maybe uh, maybe we're not as far along as i would hope apparently those neo nazis don't exist if you follow uh, cnn <laughs> Yeah, and they and then they throw in the argument of, oh, well, Zelensky's Jewish, therefore that solved all of the problems with Nazis that we have in the entire country of Ukraine, which is also notably one of the most corrupt countries in the world, and even the IMF admits that. Like, that's one of the things, and I think just kind of that hypocrisy, too, has been really interesting to watch happen in real time as you watch CNN and Fox News cover these stories, and they act as if the conflicts between Russia and Ukraine and NATO just magically started in February, right? They act as if the Russian government just looked and said, hmm, I don't know, let's let's say that we're launching a, a special military mm. operation in Ukraine, and that there was no basis for that. And they use words like unprovoked to convince the public that that's how it actually was. And it's like, yeah, no, this conflict has been going on, well, this one specifically for nearly a decade, but this entire conflict has been years and years <laughs> in the making. And the United States has had a heavy hand in that and so have other media networks that refuse to actually be honest about it. Mm. I mean, Putin's dog obviously just peed on his carpet and he just got angry and decided to bomb Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's how that's that must be how it worked. The, the Do, unprovoked is how. doesn't it doesn't that mindset sometimes just want to make you run into a wall. It does. It does. And I think certainly when especially in this case, my goodness, it has been when every COVID. media outlet is par- Yeah, they're all. Yeah, that that too. When every <laughs> media outlet is parroting the exact same narrative and then you get on social media and everyone on social media is saying the exact same thing. It just puts you in a place where you're going, am I the only one seeing this for the way that it is? Am I the only one here in this little bubble that thinks that it's a little weird that every mainstream media outlet 
outlet that sold the story of weapons of mass destruction and openly and blatantly lied the public into war is now once again claiming that the U.S. is not being tough enough on Russia and that it needs to get more involved in Ukraine. I mean, is that is that just me? Like, <laughs> what? What are some of your worldviews? I mean, you were talking earlier that uh, the left-right paradigm seems to be irrelevant, and I tend to agree with you. So I'm kind of asking this question because I'm, I asked the question to myself also. Yeah, I, you know, I will say I've never found a political party that I really, truly align with. I guess, if anything, I'm kind of a little libertarian-ish in the sense that, Ron you know, Paul. I'm not, a, right, yes, Ron, Ron Paul is one of the goats for sure, and he's, he's done a lot. I'm so sorry, my, I was going to say, speaking of technology problems, I am forever fighting it out with my camera. I think it should be good to go now. Um, yes, I can see it. Yes, Ron Paul is definitely a hero of mine, and I've had the privilege of being able to interview him on RT America, which is sure. a reminder that if he will come on RT, then uh, it must not be too bad of a network. No, but I think other than that, I mean, I've always been very anti-big government because as we've seen with what the federal government has done just with COVID alone, right? They have used it to their advantage, just right, with COVID, with gosh, the, uh, the uh, war on terrorism, so-called, and, you know, the Patriot Act that they passed in the aftermath of that. Vaccines and, so, and vaccines also. Yeah, yeah, there is, it's, it, it is frustrating to watch people who want the federal government to have more power over our lives because I don't know if they figured it out yet, but the federal government does not care about the average American and they are not acting in their best interest. And so I think for me, that's always kind of put my focus on more local solutions. Let's handle things at a local level. But I think other than that, you know, definitely when it comes to foreign policy, I've been very passionate about the fact that the government is spending 700 plus billion dollars bombing countries around the world, doing it illegally according to their own constitution and their own rules that they have in place. And I think when it comes to sort of my worldview, whether it's in terms of politics or whatnot, it all just kind of comes back to accountability. I mean, I want accountability for government officials, for the police, for every entity in our lives that is making decisions for us. They need to be held accountable for what they're doing. And, you know, I kind of tend to think that a lot of the, because I know I have a lot of friends that refer to themselves as anarchists, and I think that that's kind of, that, that, that's a nice idea i haven't in my mind thought that that's something that we'll really be able to get one day so maybe i'm a little bit more cynical but i think i'm kind of just in that place of wanting to deal with where we're at right now and wanting to you know hold the officials we have in power right mm -hmm. now accountable and wanting to rein in a lot of that spending and actually focus it here at home on our country on our people where we actually need it instead of you know bombing countries all around the world and trying to start world war three every few months and it does seem like that i mean as somebody who lives on the african continent now i'm i'm an absolute outsider and from where i'm sitting it does look like the us and nato want a world war three yeah and i you know i i kind of am in that position of you know, sometimes looking at NATO and thinking, well, surely they don't, you know, like, surely they're not dumb enough to pick a war with another nuclear power and to quite literally destroy this entire planet by sparking World War III. But then you see the moves that they're making and you see this continued push to shove their alliance right up to Russia's border, all while Russia has spent decades saying, look, do not do that. Do not do this. This is not going to end well. And at the same time, of course, NATO wants to claim that they have a quote unquote defensive alliance and that that's why, you know, they are just doubling in size and getting closer and closer to Russia's border. And yeah, I, I think that kind of puts you in the place of looking at it and saying, okay, well, are they actually willing to risk World War III here? Because that's what it looks like. Mm. And yet, at the same time, I don't think that that's what the majority of the world really wants. I mean, if they were, if they were smart, <laughs> then, but it has just been, it's been frustrating to see those escalations for sure. Who do you think is driving all of this? You know, that's 
That's a good question, and I think that a lot of, I, uh, you know, I, I, it is kind of one of those things where you bring into the fact that surely there, in terms of who is behind the scenes, in terms of, you know, it's not, it's not Joe Biden making the decisions for the United States, I would argue. And I think that certainly there's a lot more behind the scenes, but I don't know if I would be as quick to call out exactly what that is. And I think it has a lot to do with mainly the major corporations. I think it has a lot to do with billionaires around the world. And I think it also has to do with sort of this push within the United States to think that other countries can't get too powerful, right? They don't want Russia to have too much power, even if it's just literally over their own country. And so they're looking at Russia as a country that they need to push back, that they need to tamper down a little bit, saying, okay, you clearly are a country that is very rich in natural resources, so we're going to try to cut you off from the rest of the world. And that so far has not worked. And I think that that's been one of the most powerful things to come out of what we've seen over the last couple of months is that when it comes to this campaign that is being led by the U.S. and by its allies across Europe, that has not been followed by countries like China, India, Saudi Arabia, major you know, countries in the Middle East and Southeast Asia. There has definitely been this pushback against what the United States is doing, even if they don't want to come right out and say it, even just the countries that are saying, hey, let's take a more neutral stance to this. What they're really saying is that they're not going to fall in line behind just what the United States wants and what they're trying to promote, so to speak. Do you think the U.S. is dying? Do I think that they're lying? No, dying. Oh, do I think the U.S. is dying? I'm sorry. Um, To a certain extent, yes. And I think that they're that is their own demise. I think that they've kind of gotten to the position where, you know, the dollar is the world reserve currency. The U.S. is the largest economy in the world. And for so many years, whenever they've said jump, the rest of the world has said how high, right? The, the rest of the world has fallen into line when the United States says that they are going to launch this war on terrorism. Well, every other country in the world has to be like, well, we can't be pro-terrorism, so we have to just go along with what the United States is doing and not question it, except now they're getting into this territory. And I think that the U.S. is getting a little cocky here and they're getting a little arrogant and thinking that they certainly have more power than they do to a certain extent. And they're trying to, you know, push Russia out of the civilized world. But what's interesting, and I think that what I'm definitely going to continue to keep an eye on, is how the U.S. is pushing Russia and China closer together. Because to a certain extent, I think that is on purpose. And I think that, you know, the U.S. always wants some sort of bad guy to pick on. And they always want... They've got to have some sort of enemy. And so right now, as they're watching Russia and China strengthen their alliance, they're kind of looking at it saying, oh, well, this is the perfect big bad guy that we can eventually, eventually target, even though, I mean, we could talk about it all day long, how that is threatening and how that would be bad for really the world as a whole, yet... It, it seems as if those who are really in power in the U.S. thrive off of that chaos and they thrive off of really putting the world in a place where there is no stability, right? It's just constant from one thing to the next to the next. And here we are kind of in this ride. We moved from COVID all the way to Russia. And I quite frankly don't want to know what is next on <laughs> what, what is going to be the next big thing here. Climate change. Yeah. Yeah, that is a, but do you think that people are going to get on board with that? I guess that's my question because you think so? It's just like they did with COVID, just like they do with Zelensky and the little Ukrainian flag that they put on their, on their top and on their Facebook profile, they're going to jump on board. Yeah, I guess that's, that's fair. I think that, you know, with COVID, it was, they made the threat just something that could target anyone, right? Anyone at any time. And it became sort of this fear tactic that everyone had to get on board with because they, right, they, it was 
quite literally invisible. It was something that could target anyone. And what's been interesting is to watch how they've made that move to Ukraine. And yet the majority of people that are, you know, saying hashtag pray for Ukraine couldn't even find Ukraine on a map. So I guess that that is fair. I will give you that, that, you know, whenever they start rolling out the new the new climate change, you have to do this and that for the climate, whatever ridiculous thing it is, like, you know, shortening your showers or what, whatever the new thing is that they decide that they're going to roll out and claim that it's for the climate, then yeah, people will probably hop on board with that and act like they're doing something noble, you, so to speak. You mentioned Ukraine on a map, um, but actually, I think even fewer people know where Yemen is on a map. Yeah. I would agree. I would agree. And I think that that kind of shows you the hypocrisy of mm. the mainstream media right there when yeah. the United States is actively, I know, on the first week where the U.S. was, you know, announcing all kinds of new sanctions against Russia, claiming that it was for the targeting of Ukraine. The U.S. was bombing Somalia and the U.S. at the same time is helping Saudi Arabia commit genocide in Yemen, where they have literally fueled the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. And you're right, the, the, the average person, not only can they not find Yemen on a map, but they have no idea what's going on there. They have no idea what the United States is doing and just how horrific it is in that country. And they are so desensitized mm. to everything that's happening there, yet they turn on the nightly news and they see this on the ground harrowing footage from Ukraine and automatically they think that, oh, now we've got to focus on Ukraine because that's something that's right in front of their face. But at the same time, they're not seeing what's happening in Yemen because the media is refusing to focus on that or even to bring that to the forefront. And Yemen is one of the worst in terms of uh, death tolls. Uh, while you're drinking your Dr. Pepper, um, Norman has a question for you. Um, he wants to know your your view uh, or your views on uh, Hillary Clinton and Russiagate. Oh, goodness. Don't get me started on Hillary Clinton. Uh, you Please know, get started. I Please get started. Right. <laughs> right. I'm getting ready. Let's 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 go. Gosh, she was one of the ones that I cut. I mean, I covered her in 2015 and 2016. And I, I remember whenever the Hillary Clinton laptop scandal was the thing that the media refused to talk about. And at the time, I didn't quite get it in the sense of why isn't this? Why won't they be fair to actually talk about this candidate? And little did I know that they were going to try to make Russiagate happen to the extent that they did. And it's almost laughable to me still that you have mainstream networks that sat there and they tried to sell every part of Russiagate, no matter what new thing it was, whether it was the Trump P tapes or, you know, it was these claims that Trump was colluding in this way or that way or whatever. It didn't matter how ridiculous it was. You had every top mainstream network that would sit there and say, oh, yes, well, our, you know, anonymous intelligence sources told us, therefore, it must be true. And they parroted that information and sold it to the world as if it was fact and then when it turns out that not only was it not fact but it was just as ridiculous as it sounded at the time then they kind of just backed away from it and we're like oh yeah yeah well, well either we will not update it and we will not tell you that we blatantly lied to you and had the wrong information or we'll just kind of throw in a footnote and you know note that it was updated and it it's still crazy to me to think about just how there was that much pushback against someone like Donald Trump, because look, I know that there are a lot of people that are hardcore supporters of his. I tend to be in the camp of, you know, he got into office, he didn't do a lot of stuff that he said he would do. And I don't quite think that he was as anti-establishment as he campaigned on being, certainly. But just to think of how much of a campaign there was to stop him from being in office, even claiming that you know, that there were Russian troll farms that were putting out ads on Facebook and that that was changing viewers' minds when it came to someone like Hillary Clinton in an election where you had the two most unpopular candidates of all U.S. history, pretty much. I mean, it is just, it's crazy to see how we've gotten to this point. And I think it did kind of lay the groundwork for where we are now. So maybe, maybe there's that. What is it with laptops? Because I'm thinking of uh, Biden. Yeah, you know, that's that's a good question. I think that, that maybe maybe there's something more to it. But yeah, everyone seems to have a laptop and there's always something on it and they never 
seem to be smart enough or they think that their laptops are protected forever and they're never going to be found or what's more maybe they just don't care maybe you're someone like Hunter Biden and you think that you are invincible to the rest of the world is he invincible do you think well I mean it, it maybe not to himself but I think that especially given you know we saw the pushback of Twitter saying mm. that, you know, an outlet like the New York Post couldn't even mention Hunter Biden, that they couldn't even talk, that their account would be taken down if they did. I mean, that's pretty ridiculous. That is that is a level of censorship that you would think was hard to wrap your mind around even just a few years ago. Of course, now we know that it is very real and that it will happen in a number of cases. But I mean, the amount of people that he has protecting him and refusing to talk about the truth surrounding what he has done and refusing to talk about, you know, the crimes that mm. he has committed and that the Biden family has committed. I mean, that in and of itself is kind of a reminder that I don't know that he's necessarily invincible, but he certainly has a bit more luck than the rest of us. I want to horse you. Uh, back to, or should I say, circle back <laughs> uh, to Jen Saki um, would be proud. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I can't watch her. I want to punch something. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> um, but I want to I, I chat to you a little bit about, or ask you a little bit about RT. What was it like working there? What was the atmosphere like? You know, RT was really cool because it was truly one of the most diverse workplaces I've ever been in. I mean, we had our office was here in Washington, D.C., and we had people from all over the world. And that was so cool because coming from someplace like Texas, you have a lot of people who are from Texas, right? You don't get a lot of people who are from other countries. And so I got to work around people who mm. truly, anytime we had some sort of soundbite and we needed it to be translated, I mean, we had people there who spoke Mandarin, Farsi, Russian, of course, Spanish. You know, you had people from Colombia, Venezuela, from all around the world that had all come to DC and we're there working together. And so I got to learn so much from the people around me. And I think that that was really powerful and made it really unique. But in terms of sort of the actual workflow, I know that a lot of people in the mainstream want to think that we just get like a handout from Moscow every day that says, this is what you're doing. And these are the stories that you're covering. No, it was not like that at all. When I was a reporter for the first two years, you know, I had sort of a daily story and certainly I pitched a lot of stories and you have you are in charge of writing up your script and choosing what is in that story, right? You kind of have your topic and mm. then you pick everything else that goes into that story. And in terms of how much editorial freedom, you have a lot of editorial freedom. I mean, you do have editors that are there to make sure that everything that you're saying is factual, of course. But other than that, I mean, when I worked as the co-host of Boom Bust, one of the really cool things about our show was that we would come in every day and we would say, okay, we believe that these are the top stories of the day, right? Or these are the guests that we have, so this is what we're going to talk to them about. And we would come up with questions and write them, and then we'd get on the show, and sometimes our guests would say one thing, and it would completely change what that segment was. Sometimes we would go completely off the cuff and have a different conversation than we were planning, and we had the freedom to do that. I mean, we truly did have so much freedom in the content that we were putting on the air, and it was really cool to get to work with, you know, the group of people that I was with and they really were like a work family, as cheesy as that sounds, you know, being in DC away from my own family, it really was cool to get to go into the office, go to work every day with a group of people that I genuinely enjoyed being around and that, you know, made me laugh on a daily basis. And that was something that I'll always be grateful for. I mean, what happened? I mean, after Russia, uh, went into Ukraine. I don't want to say invaded because I've done a number of podcasts on that and a number of my guests have said that it wasn't an invasion. It was more of an incursion or a military operation. But whatever the term is, uh, when Russia went in, RT mm -hmm. America just shut down almost overnight. What What happened? Yeah, so it was, you know, I only can speak to sort of my standpoint from it, mm. but I think that, gosh, what was that, February 24th and then... We kind of had, you know, that was on a Thursday. And so it was kind of over the weekend was when you had 
this onslaught of RT America was taken down by DirecTV, taken down by Roku. Some of the shows that were associated with it under a different production company said that they were pulling their shows. And so it just kind of felt like there was this building momentum to take down RT, right? To take it off the airwaves, end it all together. And then we were eventually pulled from YouTube afterwards and all of our content was not necessarily taken down because I guess you can see it in other countries, but it's blocked from here in the United States at least. And so from my standpoint, what I was told was that they were in a position where management made the decision to cease operations and that that was basically the communication that we got. And so I know that certainly the fact that we were kind of in a position where we were being taken down in every way possible from broadcasting in the U.S. had something to do with it, of course, because you can sit there and make shows all day long. But if you can't broadcast them and you can't put them out there to the audience that we were normally used to, then that definitely has an effect on it. But you know, in terms of what was actually the decision that was made and what influenced that decision, I can't really speak to that and don't necessarily know what all went into that. If you were to think back to some of your journalism uh, or your reporting, this is a this is a tricky question. Okay. But if you're honest with yourself, have you ever looked back and thought, "Oh no, I shouldn't have reported that. I think that was fake." That that is a tricky question. I wouldn't say fake. I think fabricated. I don't know that I would say fabricated either. Um, let me think about that for a second because I think that there's been a lot. I mean, I've, I, you know, I think the answer to that is no because I think about a lot of the story. There, there are some cases where I look back and I think, well, I would have covered that a little bit differently, maybe, or you know, in hindsight, this is what I would have done differently. I was, I was asked about that a lot whenever we had, you know, whenever everything shut down with RT America, of course, everyone wanted an interview at the time. And I didn't do many, but there was one um, reporter that I talked to that was from a publication in Texas. And he was, he, you know, he had gone back through everything that I'd done. And he was asking me all these questions. And he was like, you know, well, you, he brought up, I believe it was, whether it was the Vegas shooting or the Parkland shooting, or, you know, some of the mass shootings that have happened here in the United States. And he was like, you know, you, you reported on this shooting and that shooting and you mentioned some of these quote unquote conspiracy theories that were going around at the time. And I, and he was saying it from a standpoint of, well, why would you, why would you even give airtime to anything that questions the official narrative on what the shooting was or what, you know, what the government has put out there, whatever that may be. And, you know, whenever he was asking that, I was looking at it and I was saying, well, some first of all someone should be questioning it second of all if you specifically look at something like the parkland shooting this is a case where the suspect in the shooting was known to the fbi like he had been reported directly to the fbi multiple times in the weeks leading up to the shooting and so as an american I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this and I'm saying, well, wait a second, how many millions, billions of dollars do we use to fund the FBI? And yet you're telling me that this kid, literally a teenager, was reported to them multiple times and they either knew exactly what he was doing or they just completely ignored it and decided that it wasn't worth their time. And as a result of that, people died. And from my standpoint, I'm like, yeah, I would absolutely question that narrative and bring up that information, not coming from a place of saying that these questions are absolutely Mm. what actually happened that we know that, but coming from a place of saying, hey, let's ask these questions. Let's talk about this. Let's actually have this conversation that the media is refusing to have. And so I think that that's probably the biggest thing when I look back, you know, just being willing to ask those questions, even if I may look back at it a few years later and think like, oh, I would have said or done or said that a little bit differently. Just having that openness, you know, is something that I've always tried to have when it comes to my coverage. Do you think we are in a pandemic of censorship? Yes, yes, very much so. Goodness, it's been crazy to see even just the the targeted attacks across social media outlets. I mean, I remember back 
in 2018. I had just started with RT America. Before that, I was doing freelance work with an outlet called the Free Thought Project. And they at the time had millions of followers on Facebook, right? Facebook was the main place where people followed them, where they saw their stories. It was their main source of traffic. And then Facebook came in, they took down their Facebook pages. They took down my Facebook page with nearly 70,000 followers on it. And then for them, Twitter also took down their pages. And it was just... It was crazy to see really this targeted attack. And we've now seen that, you know, with someone like an Alex Jones, a Donald Trump, whoever it may be, when they are deplatformed, they're deplatformed by everybody. Even Spotify is jumping in and saying, no, you can't be on our platform, right? It is something that it just goes all across. And so I think it kind of follows that same narrative that we saw with COVID was you cannot ask any questions that challenge the official narrative. And if you do, then you will be censored. You will be labeled as misinformation, even if what you're saying right now is something we'll admit as fact in a couple months. They said, hey, we are going to take you down. We are going to target you. And you are not going to get that platform back if we do eventually admit that what you're saying was actually true. And so now we're seeing that same sort of just approach applied across the board when it comes to things with Russia. And I think it's a reminder to people that, look, this is how they're doing it. They are conditioning people to believe that Mm. whatever the thing of the moment is, whether it's a country, whether it's a virus, whatever it may be, that you have to fall in line with what the official narrative is. And if you question it, then this is what happens. Like they kind of set it up in the sense of exactly what we're seeing with someone like Julian Assange, right? You look at someone like him and you say, well, wait a second, he didn't commit any violent crimes. He didn't publish anything that was not factual. Yes, he embarrassed the U.S. military industrial complex, absolutely, but he's now being held behind bars for as long as they can hold him, even though they know that it could lead to the loss of his life. And they're doing that to set that example for anyone else who decides that they want to be the next Assange and that they want to put factual information out there about what the United States is actually doing. Hashtag Julian Assange didn't hang himself. Yeah, yeah, he's, you know, he's got a big following. And I think that that's probably one of the reasons why he's still, you know, still fighting and still walking around today and is still alive because they know that there is much more of a movement of people who support him and are calling for his freedom because they know that at the end of the day, his case impacts all of journalism, right? It impacts every publisher, anyone who is publishing information about Mm. the government now has the precedent that the government could target them based solely on what they've done to Assange. And it's crazy to me because I know there's people out there that may not be a big fan of him or they may not agree with some of the stuff that WikiLeaks puts out there. But it's like you see this precedent that is being set and that affects all of us, whether it's right, left, whatever, you know, whatever you agree with or don't agree with, that has an impact on truly all of us at the end of the day. Uh, what has been your biggest red pull moment as a journalist? My biggest red pill moment as a journalist. Um, let me, let me, yeah, let me help. Let me help you. Let me phrase it differently. Uh, have you gone into a story with a particular mindset and come out of that story totally different in terms of your mindset? Um, Actually, a good question as well. You know, I think that a lot of the, so I've done a lot of coverage in terms of police accountability, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement. That's been something that I've followed all the way through. And I think that one of the things with that that I've noticed is that, you know, a lot of times when we talk about Black Lives Matter as an organization, there's a lot of problematic stuff associated with it. But when you see the people on the ground who are getting involved and who are involved in those protests, they're not seeing that, right? They're seeing the need to be part of some justice movement. They're seeing the need to stand up for their fellow people and their hearts are in the place where they see that they are doing something good. And so I think that's one of the things I've battled with, especially covering the protests here in DC when they happened in 2020, you know, you see all of these people who 
are genuinely frustrated with the system that they live in. And they feel like taking to the streets and taking part of these protests are what are going to make a difference in their communities. And what we've seen two years later is that nothing has changed and that, you know, certainly it has been one of those cases where all of those Mm -hmm. promises of change and where, you know, the D.C. mayor agreeing to paint Black Lives Matter across the street that leads up to the White House, that's done nothing. It was all, you know, just to give them a show and to make them feel like they were being listened to. But I think it's kind of been a reminder to me that, you know, even when it is one of those cases where you see the people on the ground who their hearts are in the right place, like it's also a good reminder to take into account really the overall picture here and what kind of happens as a result of that, if that makes sense. Uh, Black Lives Matter doesn't have anything to do with Black Lives, though. It's more of a virtue, virtue signaling political type movement. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we've seen that more and more, especially when it comes to the cases that they want to stand up for. And especially when it comes Mm. to their silence in terms of the cases of people of color who have been targeted for care for being law abiding citizens and carrying guns, you know, carrying guns lawfully who have been targeted by police. Mm. And they've kind of stepped back and uh, been silent about that. So I think that, yeah, there certainly is the writing on the wall, but it's. No, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, I think it's also, my camera is going to get me again. I'm sorry. What? That that 30, it's the 30 minute timer on it. And I've tried every single fix to, uh, to get it not to turn off. And it still, it still does it. So one of these days I will find a fix or some great viewer who knows something I don't may reach out and I will gladly take their advice. But I'll I'll chat you afterwards about that. I might have a fix for you. Okay. All right. I will, I will take what I can get there. But um, yeah, I think certainly following and even just with the, and maybe that's something that I've grown in a little bit more now that, you know, we've gone through COVID, we're going through Russia, whatever this is, you know, Mm -hmm. now I'm kind of in the place of, of sort of what is the thing of the moment has become a lot more defined than it was even just a few years ago. So you're not that type of person who follows the current thing. I, I try not to be. I, you know, it, it, what's fun, what has been funny is just, you know, seeing everything with COVID. I think I was kind of in a situation mm. where I'm looking around at all of this, especially being in DC during COVID. I mean, that, that was extreme, right? You have people here who still to this day will walk around outside and wear a mask. And still, it doesn't it doesn't matter the laws and, reg- you know, it doesn't matter if they have the local government telling them what to do, like they still will do that, which granted that's their choice to do that. But um, it, it definitely was a situation where I'm looking around again, thinking like, are these people crazy? Are they not paying attention to what I'm seeing? And I guess in some cases they're not. But I think definitely working for RT and being in a position where, you know, I absolutely am someone who is incredibly anti-war and I've been very critical of, you know, the U.S. foreign policy. But looking at what Russia is doing, I've also been very vocal about the fact that, look, they have gone into this with defined objectives, right? Russia has said, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. If at any point y'all want this to stop, this is what is needed, right? They've had these clear-cut demands, and the United States does not operate like that. They invade a country, they overthrow a leader, they launch a full-on media propaganda campaign, and then they just decide they're going to chill out and occupy that country for an undetermined amount of time. But that's not what we've seen Russia do, Mm -hmm. right? Russia has not overthrown Zelensky. They have all of their, you know, targeting. Of course, I know the media loves to blow it up and act as if they're just targeting hospitals and schools like the United States does on a regular basis. But Russia has been very vocal about the fact that, look, these neo-Nazi militias that they're fighting are hiding in these hospitals, right? They're hiding in these buildings, these abandoned buildings and areas where they are not only targeting Russia, but they're also targeting the civilians there. And so... I think that certainly being in that position of working for RT, but also looking at this conflict and seeing it for what it actually is rather than for what the mainstream media has tried to convince everyone that it is, has definitely put me in that position where I, I guess I'm once again on the on the opposite of the narrative of, of the moment. I'll let you know when it comes to the next one where I stand on that one. What's, uh, what's more important, facts or storytelling? 
Facts, absolutely. At the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. And I think that that's why you've kind of seen media go in the way that they have. Because look, they want viewers. They want clicks. That's why they have the saying, if it bleeds, it leads. Because on their standpoint, if they get on there every day and they say, oh yeah, the U.S. killed more kids in Yemen, yeah, that's going to get a response. But if they get on there and they say, you know, World War III is about to break out and the U.S. is, you know, it's increasing its sanctions against Russia, but not by enough. And they kind of come at it from this standpoint that not only brings fear and makes the American people interested, but it also gives them a reason to turn on their TV night after night after night. And so that's why we've seen them go in that direction. And unfortunately, they have left the facts behind and they don't seem to care about it because they're keeping their advertisers happy. They're keeping their special interests happy. They're keeping their connections to the White House, mm. right? I, RT was not allowed to go into White House press briefings. And of course they claim like, oh, you're Russian state media, therefore you can't go into it. But on my end, I'm like, yeah, y'all don't want to hear the questions that I would be asking, you know, the whoever the spokesperson of the moment was, the conversations that I would get to have with Jen Psaki would be uh, not, not what would, not what we've seen from the majority of the reporters that are in there for sure. Well, speaking of facts, PJ um, wants to know if you covered uh, Jan 6. I, so I actually did not from an on the ground perspective. And the only reason for that was because at the time RT America was on and every other week kind of that was their response to COVID was to go on an every other week schedule. So it was like I was working from home one week and then I was working in the office the next week. And so the week of January 6th, I actually was at home and not in the office, which was frustrating as I'll get out. I will tell you certainly mm. from the perspective of a journalist to have to sit at home and know that you were in the same city um, where the, what started out as these massive protests are happening and to have to watch everything on TV has probably been one of the most frustrating cases and definitely something that I wish I could go back and do things a little bit differently and actually be there on the ground, even though I know there that day that there was just a lot of... I say fear, but there was a lot of just kind of questions about what was going to happen, how everything was going to roll out. And so what was ironic was that, no, I wasn't there on January 6th, but I was there in the next couple of weeks when the actual presidential inauguration did happen. And I mean, we saw the amount of troops that were here in DC, they completely shut everything down. We were having to go through checkpoints in order to get to work. And it was literally living in a war zone. It was so surreal, so bizarre, and definitely something that has stuck with me ever since. All because of a president who can't speak in full sentences and supposedly, yeah. and supposedly beat Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think they just, uh, maybe they needed something to do. I, I don't know. It was just like, they just needed some sort of theater because it was ridiculous. I mean, the level, like, it, that's all that I can describe it as. I mean, they shut down the metro system in downtown. So it was like commuting mm -hmm. to that, and they put up all of these barricades. And they had more, I think at the time, they had more troops in D.C. than they had in, like, all of Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and D.C. is a tiny city. Like, this is not a large place whatsoever. And so this idea that there was going to be some sort of an uprising on Inauguration Day and that they had to bring in, like, 20,000 troops in order to stop it, I mean, it was ridiculous. They, I, I think they just needed, maybe they had some extra money in the budget and needed to put on a show. And so for that, they, uh, <laughs> they decided that they were going to go all out and really that's exactly what they did but yeah definitely one of those dc memories that will always stick with me before i forget uh earlier we were talking about black lives matter and how it's uh it's completely captured have you have you got an iphone yes yeah have you ever asked siri if black lives matter no i have not Okay, can I can I can I play it for you? Yeah. Can I listen to yeah, this? Yeah, go for it. Hey Siri. Mm. Do black lives matter? Yes, black lives matter. Okay. Now. Watch this. Hey Siri. Okay. 
Do all lives matter? I appreciate your interest in politics, but it's not a part of my programming. This is a good conversation to have with a fellow human. <laughs> with a fellow human? That's hilarious. You could do it right now. I'd be very interested to see. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain she has the same answer. You think she has the same answer here in the US? All right, let me see. Pretty certain. Uh, is she? Oh, no, hold on. Let me see. You say that. I'm like, I don't remember the last time I messed with Siri. <laughs> is that? Hold on. How do you? Now that you say that, this is a ridiculous question, but how did you get to Siri to ask that? Oh, I, oh is your Siri turned off? <laughs> Maybe. Oh, okay. She well, don't, don't worry about it then. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. I'll have to find that later. I'm sorry. I'm sitting there going, I don't remember the last time I asked Siri something. How ridiculous is that? <laughs> it's crazy. I am I am failing at uh, being an iPhone user over here. My little sister would be ashamed. She asks Siri ridiculous questions all the time just to see what she responds with. So. <laughs> um, okay. I asked this question to all my guests. Are you ready? Okay. In front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? Um, what do I see? Is this a crystal ball for me or for the world or what is it for me? Hmm. Um, I see travel and I don't know exactly what that looks like just yet, but I know that over the last two years, not being able to travel has been incredibly difficult and it's definitely been something that I've wanted to do. And so... I see, you know, more international travel in my future. I don't know where to exactly yet, but that's definitely something that I want to do, especially being cooped up here in D.C. for as long as I have been. Oh, that's a good enough answer. I'll take it. Rachel, if people want to follow your work or follow you, where can they go? All right. So I am anywhere that I haven't been banned. Um, you can follow me on. I've got a channel on Rockfin. I usually do weekly live streams there um, under just Rachel Blevins. I'm also on Telegram at t.me slash Rach Blevins. Twitter, Instagram, you name it. I'm also on Odyssey and Rumble. And yeah, I'll do live stream videos. I'll post commentary videos, griping about whatever the uh, conflict of the moment is and trying to shed some light on stories that the mainstream media is refusing to talk about. So if you guys will follow me there, that would be awesome. Rachel Blevins, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Don't go anywhere. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare battle of ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.